John chapter 15, beginning with verse 5. One verse I'd like to read for you today. I will not take the time to read all of these verses, but I would like to read this one with to you today. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that, that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. For without me, ye can do nothing. I was praying a couple of days ago, and uh, this scripture came through my mind, and this was the thought that I feel like God gave me in reference to this scripture. That the foundational revelation of a consistent personal relationship to God and with God that is marked by consistency in devotion and dedication and prayer is without me ye can do nothing or I need God. I'll read that again. These are... The words, I haven't read, read this someplace. I'm not quoting somebody else. I'm just reading to you what I wrote down that I felt in my mind or heart as I was praying about this. That the foundational revelation of a consistent personal relationship to God and with God that's marked by consistency in devotion, dedication, and prayer is without me ye can do nothing or put into our language, I need God. And I'm going to go so far as to say that the revelation of how much, how much you really need God is the greatest revelation of life. And it's the revelation that opens the door to everything that God has for us. It is the revelation, the understanding that is the key that opens the door to every blessing God has. Simple thought. But it's the key. The revelation that I need God. Dear Lord Jesus, we have come to this place today not to play church. We have come to this place to worship you, to allow you to work in our hearts and lives, and that you might speak to us. We stand in your presence today needing you, Lord. We stand in your presence needing you far more than we have any idea that we need you. We trust in ourselves far more than we ever even dreamed that we trust in ourselves. And I'm asking you somehow today, God, not through me, but through your own spirit, that you will pull the curtain back 
and let us see just how literally we need you. In Jesus' name. And I'm asking you to help us to give ourselves to you that you might do all for us that you would choose to do, that you would like to do. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Thank you. I am preaching today to a large segment of this congregation that has a very low opinion of themselves. Or you look around and say, oh, well, he can't be talking about me because he must be talking about somebody that hasn't had any education or doesn't have any money or doesn't have a job or whatever. No. For I've discovered that frequently the most with it people that I know are actually people that when you uncover their true feelings about themselves, their feelings about themselves are very, very poor, very low. In psychiatry or psychology, they call that low self-esteem. When your opinion of yourself is that you are not worth much, that you're not capable of much, so on and so forth. They call it low self-esteem. The problem, of course, with Christianity in relationship to a person with low self-esteem could be one of two different directions. First of all, if you're a person who readily wears your feelings about yourself on your elbows and make no secret to anyone of how you feel about yourself. That your feelings about yourself are very, very low and therefore you're not capable of doing this and no one could love you and no one can help you and so on and so forth. Then it becomes, your problem with Christianity becomes that it's very difficult for you to let God love you or to believe that anybody else loves you. And so therefore you do not accept and receive the things that God has for you because you don't feel capable of receiving them or worthy of receiving them. And that really is a very precarious position to be in. But if you will allow me to express my personal opinion, I feel like that there are some of you here who are in far worse far more of a precarious position than the person who readily admits and even broadcasts their feelings of inferiority, their low self-esteem. And that's the person whose low self-esteem is so low and their feelings about themselves are so bad and they're so afraid that someone will know really how they feel about themselves that they hide it all behind a mask, behind a front. They hide it behind sharp dressing clothes, the latest of styles of haircut or hairdo, the right cologne, carrying yourself in such a way 
playing the put-down game with someone else, the cut-down game, to bring them down to your level. People who play cut-down or put-down only do so not because they're up, but in an effort to bring others down to them. It's the only reason play, people play put-down or cut-down. And I say play, I realize I'm not talking to children. But unfortunately, adults don't outgrow the game. And then there are others who hide their low self-esteem behind the great efforts for accomplishment. They strive to do. They strive to be. Because by making these efforts, they think that their accomplishments will convince themselves and other people that they are better than they feel. The problem they have with Christianity is this. It seems as though while they're trying to drag themselves out of this pit through accomplishment, it seems that Christianity is pulling them back down. You're a sinner. You, you can't do this. You can't, you know, without me you can do nothing. And so they fight. The principles of Christianity, such as humility, and they fight for their pride. You say, how can a person with low self-esteem be proud? It's exactly the same thing. For you see, pride is simply defined as attempting to be or presenting yourself to be Something you are not. And God resists the proud. You say, but I'm, I feel like I'm no good. And then, do you readily admit that to God? Do you readily admit that to others? If you do not, you're proud. You're attempting to be what you're not. The first principle of Christianity is honesty. God is a God of truth. Honesty simply means that you're dealing truthfully. David in his psalm of repentance, Psalms 51 said, Thou desirest truth in the inward parts. I do not mean that by that that we should dress slovenly, that we should act lazily. That we should go around bad-mouthing ourselves. I don't mean that at all. Honesty simply means I'm a human being. I've ha I have my faults. I have made my mistakes. I have done my wrong things. I am not capable of being God. I have long since passed the point of innocency. I need Someone to help me to change. I cannot be different by myself. Scripture says, Psalms 127 verse 1, Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain which build it. Except the Lord keep the house. Except, except the, the Lord keep the city. They that watch... Watch in vain. 
What that's saying is this. If you're attempting to change the way you feel about yourself and ultimately attempting to change the way other people feel about you by some front that you're putting up or by some effort at accomplishment or self-improvement, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. For you see, when you build your house on a foundation of sand, you build it. But you choose the wrong foundation upon which to build the changes in your life. When the storm comes, you will be revealed to be what you are. And what you are is what you were when the storm comes. You may have built your life to appear to be so good and so together. But if, you're, if you've built the changes in your life and you have tried to change the way you feel about yourself and others feel about you through your own strength, when the storm comes, everybody will know what you are. And what you are will be revealed to be what you were. But if the Lord builds the house, there is no vain or vanity or useful, uselessness in the labor. For the changes He makes are changes you can bank on, that you can trust in. The Scripture says in Jeremiah 10.23, It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. There is such a fear of honesty among us. I don't mean telling lies that, that you're all liars. As far You know, most of us basically tell the truth. That's not what I'm talking about. But there's such a fear of being open. There's such a fear of being real. There's such a fear in this world of being honest about yourself, who and what you are. People are so afraid that if they really are themselves, no one will like them. So they create this fantasy image in their mind of what someone, what they think people would like. And then they go about attempting to be what they have imagined that people would like in a person. But all of that comes crashing down in the brilliancy of the light of the revelation that without me ye can do nothing. And that's the thing we resist, you see. Our humanity resists having to say, I need God. For there are some things I want to claim as my own. For I think that my value really stands not in what I am, but what I can do. And so I evaluate myself and 
To evaluate means to put value upon. I determine the value of. That's to evaluate. And I put the value upon myself in relationship to others by making some mental or subconscious even list of what I can do in relationship to them. I can shoot a basketball in from 20 feet. They can't shoot it in but from 15 feet. That makes me 5 feet better. I can jump uh, 3 feet off the ground. They can only jump 2 feet off the ground. That makes me a foot higher than them in my jump. That makes me better. See, in the business community, that's true. It's a proven fact that taller people are automatically considered more successful. But there's where you have a problem. And that's so often why it is that shorter people run around with a chip on their shoulder. Because our society says... If you're short, you're not successful. If, you tall, if you're tall, you're automatically successful. True? Or the other way around for ladies. A tall woman is always self-conscious. There's a couple of them around here. You can watch it. It's just very, it's so subtle and, self, it's, and so much a part of them that they, they try to slump when they walk. They try to slouch when they sit. They, you know, they do whatever they can to look shorter than they are. Short men try to look tall. Tall women try to look short because the old idea that the man's supposed to be taller than the woman to be a perfect couple is so inbred in us. That's right. It's a part of us. We judge people by that. Not the size of their heart, but the height of their body. That's the way we do it. And even though we don't really like that, unless you're a tall man or a short woman, relatively speaking short, you know, there is such thing as too short. <laughs> Obviously there's such thing as too tall for a man. You know, we all have our ideals. They said tall, dark, and handsome was what you're supposed to be as a man. Well, I got the tall part, but it didn't have any of the other. My dad has black hair, and mine's far from that. He's got blue eyes, and, you know, blue eyes are supposed to be romantic. Mine's piercing green. Aren't they? You understand what I'm saying? <clears throat> when straight hair's in, everybody wants to have straight hair. When wavy hair's in, everybody wants to have wavy hair. And when we come to God, we, we bring all of this trash in here with us. Now I'm preaching to some visitors here today. And you brought all that mess in here today. All of that stuff built up within you. And all of that stuff stands between you and God as a barrier for a relationship with Him. Because the problem we have is this. We think if we don't measure up to man's standards, then God doesn't like us either. 
But God does not place value on us according to what we can do. He places a value on us according to what we are. He judges us by what we are. He takes care of what we can do. Amen. We grate with such concepts as John 3, 27. A man can receive nothing except it be given him from above. For we're in the bootstrap mentality. It says, I can pull myself up. I can make myself better. I can improve me. I can change. We have self-help programs for everything today. And Christianity absolutely cuts across all of that grain at a 90 degree angle. For bursting across the scene comes the shouting words, Without me ye can do nothing. Now wait a minute, Lord. Now just what do you mean by nothing? How far, how nothing is nothing? Now I've lived all these years without you, God. And I've done all I've done up to this point without you. So how can you say that... I? Now, sitting right here, that without me, you can do nothing. That's the curtain I'm talking about. That's the curtain I'm talking about. Have you, can you honestly say that all these years, you've done what you've done without Him? Or have you been ignorant of the fact that He was there all the time. If it wasn't for His mercy and grace, if it wasn't for His goodness that leads to repentance, you wouldn't be sitting here today. Some people don't like the color of their skin. I didn't have anything to do with the color of skin I am. Neither did you. So why in the world would it be an issue? Can I brag that I'm, I'm white? Or can you say black is beautiful? When you didn't have anything to do with it? It's not some badge you can wear. It does not color my soul because my skin is colored. That does not affect who I am in God's eyes. It does not affect who I am in God's eyes. And yet all of this cuts across the grain. And we struggle so much moving out of the flesh into the Spirit. No wonder He only left His flesh on this earth 33 years. That's all we can stand it. Man has been so addicted for, for centuries, for millennia, to having to worship something He can see, something He can touch, something He can look at. I was over here yesterday doing some work, and Joel came with me, and he wanted to watch some video, and had a video of Moses. 
the Ten Commandments. It was not the Ten Commandments, but a shorter version of a different thing, different actor's whole deal. But uh, so I plugged the thing in, was doing some work. He was sitting in the office watching it with me. The Ten Commandments. And uh, Moses had gone up on the mountain a few days, according to this particular film, and people began to murmur and complain. <clears throat> We don't know where Moses is. No, we don't know anything about his God. So uh, we, need, we need a God that's here with us now. Because Moses is gone, took his God with him. And we need to do something about it. So they were so uh, frantic at being godless that they combined all their jewelry together and melted it into uh, a mold and made them a calf and began to celebrate and worship that calf I've never seen a calf yet look like a god to me and yet that's where we are we are so imprisoned by the natural that when we come in here and our god is supernatural he's a spirit and he's asking us to move past the natural, past the flesh, and deal with him in a realm of reality where truth is still truth and lies still lie, and where reality is reality and fantasy does not exist, where it's all the way it is and not one way or the other. It really is that way. We rebel against that. We resist that. And when we resist that, God resists us. Because it's pride that causes us to be unwilling to be real. And God resists the proud. But He gives grace to the humble. Being what you are is not an excuse for staying what you are. But the first step in changing in a spiritual dimension whether that spiritual dimension is affecting you physically materially financially your opinion about yourself or whatever the first step is admitting what you are that's the first step for it is in that place of admitting what I am I am saying God here's me here's what I am I need you God I need you I cannot change me God I need you God I need you God here's what I am I have tried to change me and even though at times I've seemed to uh, for a while I've seemed to be successful ultimately I have Fallen back and failed time and time again. And God, it seems like the higher I raise me, the farther past where I was do I fall when I fall. For you see, that's the key that you don't understand. When you try to lift you up, when you try to change you, when you are not willing to be humble and say, I need God, I cannot change without Him. The higher you lift yourself up, the fall will come. And you will go 
as far past the other direction where you were when you fall as you were high. So you start here. Instead of trusting God, you lift yourself up. It's this. Till ultimately you hit bottom through no fault of God's but through stubbornness and pride that refuses to be honest and humble and say, I need God. And you will work yourself downward until all of that you are trying to hide becomes shouted from the housetops. He does say, you know, that which is done in the se- in secret shall be shouted on the housetops. The reason that is, is because people are not willing to be honest. And they cannot be without God's help. And He is here today trying to help some folks. He's here today for that purpose. Jeremiah 17 verse 5 is absolutely... A pivotal principle in our relationship with God. Jeremiah 17, 5 says, Thus saith the Lord, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man, and maketh flesh his arm, and whose heart departeth from the Lord. You see, it is not possible to be a true believer and trust in flesh. Even if you're trying to be a true believer, if you're trusting in flesh, it is only a matter of time until you will depart from the Lord. You can blame your departure on anyone you want to. You can blame it on the church. You can blame it on the doctrines of the church. You can blame it on the the preacher. You can blame it on his wife. You can blame it on the music. You can blame it on the structure. You can blame it on all you want to blame it on. But ultimately, every person that departs from the Lord, you see, departs because they were trusting in their own flesh. They were making flesh their arm. For you see, the Lord said that no one can take you out of His hand except you. The early church martyrs, when confronted with denying Christ or dying, could not be persuaded to depart from Christ. It is not circumstances. It is not people. It is not difficulties. It is not problems that causes a person to depart from God. It is not the church. It is not the people in the church. It's not the way you're treated, good or bad, that causes a person to depart from God. The thing that causes a person to depart from God is they're trusting their own selves to be righteous. They're trusting their own selves and their own flesh to be good. To become what they need to be. They're not being honest with themselves and God. Oh, you'll find folks every once in a while where they don't have any choice that will, when they're caught up against it, when it's obvious, when it's all out there where everybody can see it, will say, oh yeah, yeah, I got that problem. But give them just a little chance to recover. 
And they'll take all of that stuff and put it back in their jack-in-the-box and keep the lid down as long as they can. But let me tell you something, friend. While you play the music and turn the crank, you'll always come to a point in the click in that turn that that jack's going to come out of that box and everybody's going to see who you are. Oh, yes. He's going to come out of there one day. He's coming out of that box. Nobody can make you walk away from God. There's no doctrine that can make you walk away from God. Good or bad, right or wrong, nobody. If you walk, you're walking because you trusted in your own flesh to be righteous. And you haven't been honest with yourself. And you haven't been honest with God. And you have not been willing to admit, Jesus, without you, I can do nothing. Now understand, please, that admitting that's one thing. Allowing it to become the source of strength in your life is another. For you see, excuse me, to the flesh, saying without me, without you I can do nothing, seems to be so humiliating and seems to produce such weakness within us. But you don't understand something, friend. That which seems to make us so weak is actually that which makes us so strong. For it's only when I'm willing to admit my weakness that God is then able to help me. So then I'm not trusting my strength. I'm trusting His strength. Then it's not my own efforts that changes me, but it's God's efforts that work in me. And that which we resist the most is the greatest answer to our prayer. For those who reluctantly admit, without me ye can do nothing, they're not willing to accept that. They say that because it's been proven to them at times and through circumstances. But oh, my friend, there are days when we revert right back to it without the revelation without accepting it, is the guiding principle of our lives. I never outgrow the truthfulness of the statement, I need God. Scripture says, Cursed be the man that trusteth, trusteth in man, and maketh flesh his arm, and whose heart departeth from the Lord. For he shall be like the heath in the desert, and shall not see when good cometh, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness, in a salt land, and not inhabited. God cannot, through circumstances, prove this principle to us without great calamity, sickness, problems. The greatest curse in life is to be partially successful at trusting in flesh for you're never confronted face to face with a revelation I need God it's cursed for him Jesus said whoever falls on the rock shall be broken but on whomsoever the rock falls, it will grind him to powder. The decision of which way that goes is mine. He cannot violate my will. 
Verse 7 says, Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord, and whose hope the Lord is. You see, the Lord doesn't want to bring us to a place of nothingness. He doesn't want to bring us down where our value is is totally taken away from us and our self-esteem reads negative uh, infinity and on the scale and we are hurting and uh, and we are hopeless and we have no motivation and we have no desire and we have no, no nothing. He does not he's not attempting to bring us to a place like that. He's trying to bring us to a place quite the contrary where we can trust his strength, trust his power so that he can work his things in us and instead of us being nothing, we can become somebody and our value is based upon the fact he loves us. My self-worth is based upon the greatest scale of measurement that could ever be. And that is, I'm worth enough that God loves me. I'm worth enough that God loves me. God loves me. God loves me. I don't have to say anything else, friend. I don't have to tell you what college I've graduated from. I don't have to tell you how many bucks an hour I make. I don't have to tell you what my pedigree is and who, who it is that came over on the Mayflower that I'm related to. I don't have to tell you any of these things. I don't have to tell you my address. I don't have to tell you to make a car I drive. I don't have to use my vocabulary on you to establish my worth and my value in your eyes or anybody else's eyes. The greatest establishment of value in my life is when I realize that I'm worth enough that God loved me. God loves me. God loves me. I don't have to be something for you to love me. I don't have to do something for you to love me. I don't have to be or do anything for, for me to be worth something. What I'm worth is, is determined by something I had nothing to do with before what I am or what I can do is ever even discussed. My value is established from the time I was conceived in the womb. There was the precious blood shed on the cross for me. The most precious commodity of all in all the universe. Just a few, just five pints of that stuff was enough to cleanse the sins of all men who ever lived or ever would live. Precious blood. I was redeemed with precious blood. His own blood. It wasn't somebody else's blood. He redeemed me with His own blood. What other value scale do I need? What other currency do I have to trade in to determine my value? No, 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 no. It's blood. Paul said in Acts chapter 20 verse 28 that God shed His own blood 
The only blood God ever had was in the body of the man Christ Jesus. God shed His own blood for me. Gave His own life. The only natural life that God ever lived. The only part of Him that could ever die, died for me. Not as a, not as a mankind as a whole, but for me as an individual. For you as an individual. Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord. And whose hope the Lord is. Let me tell you something, friend. Problems? Yeah, we've got them. Troubles? You better believe it. Difficulties? They're coming. They're, you know why I know that? Because He promised they were coming. He said in the world you shall have tribulation. You're never going to be free from trouble. Sorrow is never going to be a stranger to your house. Difficulties and, and situations that constantly reveal to you who you are and what you are and how weak you are will be your constant companion. For it's only in those situations, my friend, that you will ever discover, I need God. And when you discover that, that's the greatest blessing God could ever confer upon mankind. There is nothing God can do for you that's any greater than that, than convincing you without question, without debate, without doubt. I need God. The source of a consistent prayer life is, I need God. The reason, I, you don't have to preach to people who come to church when the doors are open, when they have a revelation. I need God. It's not a question of how you're feeling or how did day go or do I want to go to church or not. That's, hey, I need God. It's not a question of desperation, it's a revelation. It's the source of my strength. I'm not going to try to drive my car down the highway on an empty tank. When it runs out, I'm not going to sit there and keep cranking until the battery's dead because that car needs gas. When I bought it, I accepted that, that condition. When I bought my car, I accepted the condition it needed gas. And if I let it run out of gas, it's not going to go where I want it to go. I don't care how much you pay for your car, friend. If you don't pull in the station up here and put 75 cents worth of that juice in it, it's not going anywhere. I don't care if it's a $100 junker or a $150,000 uh, Silver cloud. It's not going anywhere without that 75 cents uh, liquid that you put in it. It's not going anywhere. I accepted that frailty of it when I bought it. And when I came into this life, I did not come in with a nuclear reactor supplying all the fuel with me never needing to be retanked, refilled, rejuvenated. I came into this life knowing that, that though the outward man would perish, the inward man would need renewing day by day. And he's got the only filling station that works. It's not a question of desperation. It's not a question of being trapped. It's not a question of, be, of it being a grudging thing. It's not something He's trying to put on us. It's just the nature of the beast. That's just the way it is. And the reason some of you are in the trouble you're in now is God's had to let you run out of gas so you realize that you can't fill your own tank.
go and go and go and go and go and never pray. Come to one service a week if you get around to it. You haven't got the revelation yet. Never read your Bible. Read the newspaper, the Reader's Digest, novels and all that mess. Never read your Bible. You haven't got the revelation yet. I don't read the Bible because I've got to. I don't pray because I've got to. I don't come to church because I have to. It's not some religious obligation. It's not some chore God's put on me. I've got to keep my tank full or I can't go anywhere. Without me... Ye can do nothing. Without me, ye can do nothing. As great as the psychological need within me of survival and the need to eat because I'm hungry, I've been, there's been placed within me the need to be loved. For even if I sleep as I need to sleep and eat as I need to eat, and survive danger as I would choose to survive danger. My life is of no value without being loved. The psychologists tell us that it's the number one need in order to determine self-worth. Oh, that we would at least learn what psychologists have finally discovered that God knew from the beginning and created within us. And that is, it doesn't matter if you're surviving, if you're just existing, because if you, if you do not know that you're loved, then you're of no value to yourself. You don't feel like you're worth anything. You can look at this, I need God, and say, well... Boy, God's got me trapped, doesn't He? Yes. If He's just playing a game of you got to survive and i got what you need, He's got you trapped. But friend, when you put the motivation of love into it, it goes far beyond the thought that you're trapped. You're really Blessed. Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord, whose hope the Lord is. Blessed is the man. Blessed is the man. Hallelujah. Blessed is the man. And listen to what happens to that man. For he shall be as a tree planted by the waters, and that spreadeth out her roots by the river, and shall not see when heat cometh. But her leaves shall be green, and shall not... Be careful in the year of drought, neither shall cease from yielding. And isn't it amazing that the very next verse that begin the next paragraph in this chapter says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The question shouts, at humanity all across the expanse of time. Who knows their own heart? Who knows the heart of man? Just as rapidly comes the answer from the only one that does. I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doing. I know, the Lord said. I know the heart. Wow. 
you hear that? What an astounding statement. What a tremendous reassurance. I, the Lord, know the hearts. I try the reins. Come on now. Stay with me just a few more minutes. Let's look at this logically just a little bit. If I don't know my own heart, and the only one that knows my heart is God, really knows my heart, is God, then over here, the next step is, I don't know my heart, God does. Then, the conclusion is, He must first reveal to me my heart before I will then let Him change my heart. And so we gripe and grumble and murmur and complain at our circumstances. We talk about how terrible we've got it and how nothing ever works for us and nothing ever goes right and this and that and the other and, and don't even realize that we're in this step right here. I don't know my heart. God knows my heart. So He brings circumstances my way that will cause my heart to come out in the open. Because you see, for every problem we've got, God cannot deal with it until, until, either we openly and honestly admit to the problem or He brings it out. Because we will not deal with that that we cannot see we will not deal with that that we can ignore. Once this takes place, you have a choice. Hello? Once the revelation of your heart takes place, you have a choice. You can either be bitter and resentful and refuse to trust, or you can be appreciative. And accepted His love from a kind and just and merciful God. And He will begin to work the next step in your life. The problem we have is, we're so concerned about what people think about us. Some of you are in your first Pentecostal service ever. Each of our services is different you come back tonight you might be surprised what you'd see might be sometimes Sunday morning we have services that have been as quiet and as deliberate as this one has been Did you hear what I said as quiet and as deliberate as this one has been and other times you might come and you might find much more of a freedom of expression and so on and so forth we do not attempt to force the service we attempt to follow God's leading he knows. And if you were in one of our more spontaneous services, you might say, how can these people act like this? Certainly they have a problem. Because see, in our society, to be open with your feelings and to obviously demonstrate that you don't, you're not worried about what other people think about you, means there's, that you're not normal because in our world, normalcy is defined, in my opinion, simply by the statement of conforming to what other people think. 
out of fear. Or simply boil down, we live our lives dictated by the fear of men and what they think about us. And so when you come into a church that worships God like we did today or even like we do sometimes, of the first statement a visitor must think in their mind is these people are not normal because they don't act in the standard way. The acceptable way according to the opinion of men. Therefore, they, ha they have to be abnormal because they, they don't demonstrate a fear of the opinions of men. Now we're looking at it logically, right? There's no emotion in this. We're just analyzing the situation. Okay. That's the problem we have, you see. Because you cannot fear what God thinks and fear what man thinks simultaneously. You must choose one rule to live your life by. For you see, I can demonstrate to you very simply and will not take the time to do so. Even a very casual look, look through the Scripture will demonstrate that what man thinks and what God thinks are almost always opposite. Why is it like that? It was done on purpose. Is it ever going to change? No. In fact, he said, if it looks like it's changing, you better be worried. He said, beware when all men speak well of you. If it looks like everybody's approving of you, you better check where you are. You're probably not right with God. Is there a reason for that, Brother Wright? You better believe there's a reason for it. First of all, he's trying to demonstrate what the heart of man is like individually and collectively. Second of all, he's putting you in a very obvious position of choosing who you're going to respect and love the most God or man the word fear in many connotations and many scriptures can be translated reverence we use the word fear of man we can use the term reverence for God but they're actually the same thing. You see, talk about fearing men and fearing God. Well, fearing God doesn't sound... I, how can I live for somebody that I fear? I, I want to love God, not fear God. So, okay, let's change that. We'll change that word fear when, to, to reverence. Okay, good. I reverence God. But some of you reverence man. You see the trap you've got yourself into? If you're going to choose fear, well, I fear the opinion of men, so I'm going to live. And don't sit here and act like you don't do that. Don't sit here and act like, well, that's not me. I don't care what people think. Because then you're proving your dishonesty. And if I could be so bold as to say so, 
Whether you're an unbeliever or a believer, you daily make the choice who you're going to please. Very few people decide what they're going to do strictly upon their own, based upon their own desires. Amen. You act like I'm talking foreign language and I know I'm not. I know I'm not. Truth is very uncomfortable, isn't it? Trap, I fixed you today. I started early. So you wouldn't when you left at noon I'd be through. <laughs> Hallelujah. Got a few very precious people here that when it when midnight or noon strikes, they think it's midnight, so they bail out. For, they don't want anybody to see their pumpkin. So I started in advance, you see. So you couldn't slip out before I was through. Isn't God good? Who are you going to reverence? Are you reverencing God? Or are you reverencing man? Most people who do not attempt to please men only have made that choice because they feel like they can't. Did you hear what I said? Now, I know I was side, I went off a little, little bit on a tangent, just kind of let the pressure up just a little bit so you could breathe a minute. But we're right back to it, okay? You say, I don't, I don't worry about what man thinks. The only reason you quit worrying about what man thinks is because you don't think you can ever measure up to what man thinks. You've quit. You've quit trying. So either way, you're bound by what they think. Until Jesus Christ sets you free. And I use the word and I'll use it again. Free. Jesus Christ sets you free. There's no human being of their own accord without this understanding and revelation I'm preaching to you about today. Without the concept of this principle that can on their own determine to be free of the opinion of society. Can't do it. Don't sit there and argue with me. You can't do it. You haven't done it. You know you haven't. So when we talk about free, when you talk about being set free, you think of somebody being trapped, bound, in prison. And it's this revelation that sets you free. When you finally realize you'll never please man, but you got a shot at pleasing God. Do you hear what I said? What a tremendous release of pressure that comes at when you realize, I've tried all my life to please man, and I can't please man. But you know something? This book says, i got a legitimate shot at pleasing God. I have a legitimate chance to please God. Whoa, what a load that lifts off. 
Man just tells me what I've got to do and says, do it or else, we reject you. Hit the road, Jack. God says, you can please me, and I'll tell you what, I'll even help you do it. You don't even have to try to do it by yourself. In fact, if you'll just trust me, if you'll just give me a chance to work in your life, you not only, I know you'll please me because I'm going to help you please me. I'm going to enable you to please me. I'm going to put my word in your heart. I'm going to write my laws in your mind. I'm going to put my spirit within you. I'm going to give you my righteousness. I'm going to give you peace from me and joy from me. I'm going to give you worth and value because you're going to realize I love you. And in the world, when you make a mistake, they put an X on you. In the Lord, when you make a mistake, He puts His blood on you and covers up the mistake and says, it's okay, we're still going to make it. Hallelujah! We're going to make it. The Lord wants to, the world wants to send you down the road when you don't meet their standards. People are the most unforgiving beings in all of the universe. The law of gravity can be defeated, but people's unforgiveness can't. You can find you a parachute and make it from a thousand feet to the ground without getting hurt too bad. But I'll tell you what, you cross some people one time, buddy, and they will never let you live it down. You will never be free from their vengeance and wrath and resentment. And I'm going to choose to live according to the ways that would please humanity when I have the opportunity to be free from all of that, free from that pressure. Pressure. We think God's unfair when the Scripture says if you offend in one point of the law, you're guilty of all. God's unfair. At least He died on a cross to provide us a way from being free from that penalty so we can be loved and forgiven again. But with man, friend, when you offend in one point of their deal, they're through with you. Through with you. Done. It's over with. It's never the same again. Praise God. Romans 5 and 6, Paul said, When we were with, yet without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. The world tells me what I've got to do, but it's not willing to help me do it. When Christ realized I was without strength, He provides the strength. Paul said, Romans seven eighteen, In me, that is, in my flesh, there dwelleth no good thing. To will is present with me. But how to accomplish that which I will, I find not. He doesn't find it in the flesh. It is not in the flesh to do what's right. The power of doing righteousness is not in the flesh. Anybody's flesh. Becoming a Christian doesn't change that. Coming to the Lord and being filled and being cleansed does not change that, my friend. You will never, ever have power within your flesh to do that which is good and that which is right. Ever. 
ever. That's why he said, without me, ye can, present tense, do, present tense, nothing. Nothing. You can do nothing without Jesus Christ. You can't do anything. Proverbs 29 says, Who can say, I have made my heart clean. I am pure from my sin. You see, it is in the question of what is morally right and wrong that our biggest failures become evident. It's in what's right and wrong. Stand if you would if you have never done anything wrong in all of your life. We would like to honor you today. You must be Jesus here in disguise. We'd like to know who you are. No one has assumed that position of honor. I see no one standing in response to my invitation. Do you realize by sitting there you're admitting you've done wrong? By remaining in your seat you're confessing, acknowledging that you have done wrong? You realize that? And by sitting there, if you could even understand that, that once you've done wrong, you're also acknowledging, whether you would admit it to yourself or not, that there's no way out of this moral mess that we're in except the true God of truth and righteousness and holiness and goodness infuse us or transfuse us with His goodness. Many times, or not many times, but there are times when babies are born and their blood is bad or there's something wrong with their circulatory system. And, and in the past, those babies would die. But you know what they do now? They put a vein, a, a, a needle in, in an artery and a needle in a vein and they pump that baby's blood out of its body and give it a, a whole new transfusion of blood. New blood. Somebody else's blood. And it balances their system out and corrects the problem and they live. That's exactly what God wants to do with us. For I was born with blood that was tainted by sin. Within that blood was sinful nature. But oh my friend, I can have a transfusion. I can have a transfusion from Jesus Christ. A transfusion from Jesus Christ. He takes the bad blood out and puts the new blood in. Spiritually, He does that. He gives me His righteousness. He changes me. David acknowledged in 1 Samuel verse, chapter 20, verse 3, he says, there is but one step between me and death. But that same David said in Psalms 103, and I'll read that to you. Psalms 103 Verse 8, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. 
He hath not, he hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Hey, friend. Problems, difficulties, trials, tests come our way. You know what we say? What's God... Listen to this now. What's God doing? Punishing me for my sin? Are you kidding me? Those few little trials and tests you got aren't sufficient to punish anybody for their sin. If you want to talk about punishment for the sin, let's go to Isaiah 53. Let's go to Matthew 27 and, 20 and, and uh, uh, Mark 15 and Luke 23. If you want to talk about punishment for sin, let's look at a back beaten like a plowed field. Let's look at a crown of thorns placed on a head and driven into the skull with, uh, with a stick. Let's look at a face beaten to a bloody pulp. Let's look at nails in hands and nails through feet and a sword gash in a side. If you want to talk about punishment for sin, your little old problems don't have anything to do with punishing you for your sins. They're not capable of paying for your sins. And you're not capable of paying for your own through any suffering you might do. We need to wise up and quit accusing God every time we're going through something. Well, what did I do, God? Tell me what I did wrong and I'll repent. And that means you can change what I'm going through. You're not going through what you're going through to pay for your sins. You're going through what you're going through so you understand that without Him you can do nothing. The circumstance, my friend, has nothing to do with your sin. It has to do with your heart. The sin only reveals you're not trusting God. Ooh, I just felt that bubble blow the kingdom come. From this day, don't you ever accuse God of trying to make you pay for your sins. The sin you have committed has already been paid for, friend. It was paid for 2,000 years ago. You'll never pay for your sins. I don't care how much you suffer, what kind of calamity or disaster may come your way. I don't care if you lose your job tomorrow. I don't mean I don't care, but it doesn't matter if you lose your job tomorrow. You're not paying for any sin. It's not a question of sin being paid for. Therefore, it's not a question of you walking around and moping because of some sickness or some problem or some disease that's come your way. You can repent, but the reason you repent isn't so that God will take the calamity away. You repent so that your heart can be attuned to what God's trying to say to you in the midst of the problem. Hallelujah. You got problems today? Yeah, if there's sin, you need to repent. But you're not paying for your sin. It's paid for. You need to hear what God's saying. He that's got ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit's saying to his heart. And that is, you're not trusting me. But I'm no good. I said, you're not trusting me. Because if you're trusting God, you know you're good. Because He's made you good. You can't take credit for that goodness. 
Well, there's no, no righteousness in me. Oh, yes, you are if you're trusting God. You're righteous because His righteousness has been put in you. Well, I can't do anything. That's right. You can't unless you're trusting God. Paul, Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. But Paul, trusting God, said, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. When you trust in God, it goes from with, that you can do nothing to you can do anything through Christ. It's not sin that's being paid for. It's God's mercy and kindness talking to us. David said, He hath not dealt with us after our sins. Did you hear what I said? He has not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Uh-uh. No, 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 no. For as the heaven is high as above the earth, so great is His mercy toward them that fear Him. Mercy! Boundless mercy. Unlimited mercy. The only way that mercy can't make it work in my life is if I refuse to trust it. The only way that mercy can't affect me in my darkest hour, in my worst time, is when I refuse to accept its work in me. Unlimited mercy. Boundless grace. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath He removed our transgressions from us. Oh, this is going on in my life because of sin. No, it's not. There's not a sin, not a sin of any kind, of any consequence in the natural dimension that He does not forgive instantly upon true confession from a heart of faith in Him. If it's murder... The worst of terrorists who would blow a whole plane up could instantly receive forgiveness if they genuinely were contrite and desired to change their ways through the help of God. The most heinous of rapists are the stories we hear of these men who have the bodies of boys buried underneath their houses where they've molested them and destroyed them can be instantly forgiven. Through the blood of Jesus Christ and His mercy. Any sin you've committed, friend, is instantaneously gone. He puts it far from you. So it's not sin we're suffering for. It's our refusal to trust God we're suffering for. It's our refusal to acknowledge that without Him, we can do nothing. So we use alcohol or drugs, promiscuity, illicit sex, or just the plain old idiot tube to escape from acknowledging that. Anything to divert my attention from fact. Man. For as high, as far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Listen to this now. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. He doesn't pity those that fear man. He pities those that fear him. He pities those that fear him. Shows mercy and compassion on them. Why does he pity us? For he knoweth our frame. He remembereth that we are dust. 
As for man, his days are as grass as a flower of the field, so he flourisheth. For the wind passeth over it, and it is gone. And the place thereof shall not shall know it no more. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear Him. The mercy of the Lord started in it in the beginning of eternity, which has no end. And the mercy of the Lord goes from the beginning of eternity to the end of eternity, which has no end. The mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. There you can't find a time. You can't find a place. There's no instance. There's no moment of, of, of time. There's no place in eternity where God's mercy has not been just as real and relevant as it is today. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. The mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. David said another place from everlasting to everlasting, Thou art God. His mercy endures from everlasting to everlasting. Upon them that fear Him and His righteousness unto His children's children, to keep... To, to such as keep His covenant, to those that remember His commandments, to do them. The Lord hath prepared His throne in the heavens, and His kingdom ruleth over all. Bless the Lord, ye His angels that excel in strength, that do His commandments, hearkening unto His voice, the voice of His word. Bless ye the Lord, all His hosts, ye ministers of His that do His pleasure. Bless the Lord, all His works in the places of His dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Angels bless Him. Ministers bless Him. Creation bless Him. And finally, I can't stop anywhere else but soul bless Him. Bless a God like that. Soul, bless Him. Bless the Lord, O my soul. There's no God like our God. David said there's no rock like our rock. There's nobody like our God. And we should not trust in the living God. And we should not put our hope in Him. And we should not gladly confess that the door of opportunity of blessing might be open. I need God. We should not eagerly admit, without you, Lord, I can do nothing. So that through His strength and through His help, I can also say in response, but I can do all things. Through Jesus Christ, which strengtheneth me. You see, you can't have the all things, I can do all things faith, without first having, I can, I can do nothing revelation. You've got to have the I can do nothing without Him revelation to have the I can do all things through Him faith. One allows the other to come into existence. So every head is bowed and every eyes closed. There are folks here that I've preached to today, God's preached to, talked to, talked to hearts. It would blow your mind how little of this was in my notes. All I had was Scripture written down. The only thing I've read to you today was the, the opening paragraph of my message. This was not written down. This came from the heart of God. All I did was stand here and say it as it came. God's talked to some people today. 
God's spoken to your heart, friend. If you don't believe it, you're welcome to look at my notes after church and you'll find out this was not down on my notes. All I did was let God talk to you. And talk to you He has. There's some folks sitting here that don't know God. There's some backsliders sitting here that's walked away from God. There's some children of God here who have fallen far down. They need to ask God to forgive them. They need to be humble and open with God about your need so that He can help you. I want to invite, first of all, to this altar those who are not where they need to be with God. Maybe you've never known the Lord before. Maybe you've known Him and you're not walking with Him like you need to and you need to get out. You, you need to do something with God right now. You need to get right with God. You need to let God do something in your heart. I invite you to get out of your seat right now and come to this altar. You say, Preacher, huh? You want me to admit to that? I want you to admit to it so God can help you. I want you to let God do something for you. Thank God for these honest people. Honest people. Humble enough to beseech God's grace. The scripture says, God resisteth the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. His unmerited favor, His love and kindness is given to those who are willing to acknowledge, I need God. He helps those who are willing to admit they need Him. If you're too proud to ask for it, friend, you're too proud to get it. If you're not honest enough to admit you need God, you're not open enough to receive what you need from Him. Hallelujah. Praise God. Oh, the Lord's in this place. There is such a depth of the move of the Spirit here today. You can't see it on the surface, but it's here. It's been here all day. God's moving in this place. Why don't you open your heart to Him, friend? He loves you. This has been one of the most positive messages I've ever preached. There's not a negative thing in it. You've got to give the Lord the opportunity to do something for you today. You're going through it. Inwardly, outwardly. You could be going through it and everything outside look okay. You're going through it inwardly, outwardly. Is your family doing all right? Your job going okay? Then there's a good possibility God's trying to say to you, without me you can do nothing. God's trying to say to you, without me you can do nothing. God's trying to say to you, without me you can do nothing. What will you say in response to what God's saying? Will you say, yes, Lord, without you I can do nothing? Or will you say, no, I'm not willing to give up yet, God, I'm going to keep trying. I'm still not convinced, God, that I can't be good within myself. I'm still not convinced, God, that I can't make myself better. Come on, sir. Come on, ma'am, let God do something in your life today. Makes me Come on, give Him a chance. Oh, give Him a chance. Give Him a chance today. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. 
Come on, church. Pray. God's still working here. God's still working here. In Jesus' name. There's a couple of these folks in the altar that need the Lord, especially some visitors here. Please pray with them right now. We've got some folks over here that need praying with. There's a couple of backsliders in this altar. Somebody come and pray with them right now. Right now. While we're waiting on others to come. While God's still dealing with some hearts. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Hallelujah. 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 Jesus' name. Hallelujah. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Let's everybody come and pray with that will right now. We're not going to wait any longer. If you want to come pray with us, please do so. There's plenty of folks you can pray with up here. If you don't need to pray for yourself, come help us pray for these. Jesus' name. There's three or four folks standing right here that need some folks praying with them. Right now, please move. Help us right now. These are sincere people. they got hungry hearts standing right here. God wants to do something for them right now. Come on, church. Come on, let's pray. Come on, God, talk to hearts here today. Come on, let's pray with these folks. There's some folks here that want God, that need God. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Come on, church, let's believe God together today. God wants to do something. God wants to help these folks. 
Jesus' name, Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah.